and welcome. We're glad you're here. Hey, so this last Thursday, we were blessed with a free lunch. Thank you, Brother Bill. Bill uh, White back there nominated us for, uh, what was it, Bill? Pastor Appreciation to honor the church. And uh, we did get, so if anybody told you there's no such thing as a free lunch, we got one. And that was on Thursday, and that was uh, done by KKLA, and it was really a neat time to just spend with the staff and enjoy that. So thank you, Bill, for nominating us. It was like a year ago, right? Took a while, but anyway, they got to us. So uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today. We're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount, which will mean we'll cover verses 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate is the title. Once you have it, would you stand to your feet if you're able, and we'll read the text together. Matthew 7, 13. Jesus speaking. Enter through the narrow gate, Matthew 7, 13, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear, produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say, verse 22, on, to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Father, thank you for the word of God. And Jesus, thank you as our king for preaching this most amazing sermon. It's probably the most talked about sermon ever preached. And we want to understand what you were saying. And one clear thing that we see is you were inviting people to enter. And you called the entry point a narrow gate. We need to understand what that is and how one enters in and what that means for us in our lives. So would you help us to have ears to hear what our great king says to us through the scriptures and through the power of the spirit. Help us respond in a way that's wise because you compare people who are wise and foolish here, and we don't want to be foolish. We want to understand what the will of the Lord is. So help us, Father, and as we set this time apart, I pray you'll be glorified in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Enter by the narrow gate. So this particular area of study in our Bibles, completing what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, is probably the most controversial section of the sermon, I think for obvious reasons, because Jesus talks about something captured in a word called exclusivity. He says he is the singular way to be right with God. And unlike anything else in our culture where the big word today is inclusivity, right? And that's not a bad thing if we have that in the proper context. You, you know that the Lord wants as many as will come, right? He doesn't want anybody to perish. But he offers a singular way to enter into life. And that is what often troubles people. For example, Oprah Winfrey some years ago said, Jesus can't be the only way, can he? And there was a woman 
in the studio audience who challenged Oprah with John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, those are Jesus' words, so the question becomes, who is your argument with? It's not my personal opinion. My personal opinion is really irrelevant. It's what Jesus said. And when you're talking to a friend, and maybe a friend says, well, that seems very narrow, or they might say, that's narrow-minded. You might respond by saying, but that's what Jesus said. So you really have to wrestle with what Jesus said and then determine whether he's trustworthy because what he says is at stake is extremely significant. Look at the first words of verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. This particular sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. Some have called this the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Other scholars have called this a kingdom manifesto. Because remember, our big theme in the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And how one enters into that kingdom is really what Jesus has been talking about. And it would be easy to hear the Sermon on the Mount and admire it. Many people who are not Christians admire the sermon for its ethical content and its humility and all of those good things. And it is filled with that. But Jesus didn't say admire the gate he said, enter into the gate. Let me show you a picture of an ancient gate. This is the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. It, it, it is there today. And this is an example of a gate that probably reflects what Jesus is talking about. In the ancient world, they had gates, and you would enter into a city, and there would often be actual doors in the opening. And if you wanted to enter into a specific place, you entered in through the city gate. The city gate also was a place where business was conducted, contracts were agreed upon, legal decisions were made, and the elders of a city often sat in the gate. And so when you pass through the gate, you were literally passing into a kingdom, if you will, or passing into a city. The Bible paints the fact that Jesus is our city of refuge. When we run to him, this is Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, we find refuge for our souls. We find hope in him. So Jesus is inviting us to come. He doesn't simply say, just listen to the sermon and ponder it. He says, enter in. He wants us to come and find life in him. But this is really what causes some people to think about uh, the exclusive claims that Jesus makes here. He calls the, the correct gate, verse 13, after he says enter it, he says it's a narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad. The, the broad way leads to destruction. If you have an ESV, it says the broad way is the easy way that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. Many choose the wrong gate. And the wrong gate is wide, and it's easy, and it's broad. And we might ask the question right from the get-go, why is it that so many, according to Jesus' words, enter that gate, that wide gate? And I think it's probably two primary things. Look at verse 11, where Jesus identifies something important for our consideration. He says, 7:11 of Matthew, "'If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children,' How much more from the lesser to the greater will your Father, who's in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Notice Jesus says, you being evil. That's not an easy thing to take, but here's what the Bible declares. We have a fallen nature, and compared to God, we are evil. We have a proclivity towards evil. Now, most people in our modern age hear that, and they're like, how could you say that? Evil. Aren't people basically good? Answer, no. Test, go into a church nursery with 10 toddlers, <laughs> throw a Snickers bar into the middle of the room, and say to them, we want you all to sacrifice for the person that you really believe deserves this mini Snickers bar today. And watch how kind and thoughtful those little toddlers are. They'll be throwing elbows, mine, mine, mine. And I'd be doing that too because I like Snickers bars. Mine, right? Do we have to teach them that? Do we have to teach little kids to be selfish and to lie? No. One of the more provable doctrines of the Christian faith is our depravity, <laughs> right? 
We have a problem. We're fallen people. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do good things, but compared to God, we're fallen. That's why people go through the wide gate. Here's the second reason. The wide gate is easy. Everybody's going that way. It's wide open. It's not narrow. It's not tight. It's not hard. In fact, the the word uh, narrow here, this is an important nuance to understand, comes from a root word meaning to groan, as one author puts it, and from being under pressure. It's used figuratively, narrow, to represent restriction or constriction. It is the word from which we get stenography, writing that is abbreviated or compressed. So the narrow way is the harder way. It takes more effort. Imagine uh, you're driving on a country road, there's not good light, and the road narrows. When the road is wider, you don't probably have to be as focused, but if things get narrow and the lighting's bad, what do we do? We really concentrate. I harassed my mom, but my mom one time said to me, I think on the phone, Mike, do you watch the road when you drive? That's a mother question. And I was like, no, I look off to the side the whole time, (laughs) just to make my mom more nervous. When we were in India and Nepal, we were driving on some very narrow roads in a bus, moving from village to village to share the gospel. I will tell you that the roads in India and Nepal don't quite measure up to the roads in America. And I looked ahead of me, and driving the bus was a young man who looked like he was 12. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Lord! Right? You know when you can kind of look off to the side? How many of you have gone up to Hearst Castle? You know that road up to Hearst Castle? You hope that bus driver's not 12, (laughs) right? Because you're looking over the side. When the road narrows, the focus has to be better, right? It's not that we don't pay attention on wider roads, but you get the point. And Jesus is saying that the narrow gate takes more effort. It's harder, it's narrower. Now, this doesn't deny that salvation is a gift from God and it's not by works. But in order to receive the gift, to enter into life, the door is gonna be narrower. And a lot of people will say, well, don't many roads lead to God and can't we go the way that we choose and isn't sincerity the most important thing? No. According to Jesus, no. And the book of Acts puts it this way, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given among men, given from heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other name, no other way. Jesus said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one's coming to the Father except through me. Now, on a positive side of the equation, isn't it wonderful that God made a way? The one preaching the message is the way, and he was headed toward the cross. He would make the way. In John 10, 9, he actually claims, according to the NIV rendering of it, to be the gate. John 10, 9, it'll be uh, familiar words to us. He says, I am the gate of the sheep. Let me see if I can find it in my notes here. And in the imagery, let me just say that he's talking about the sheep gate in this particular imagery. And you all know, if you've studied this a little bit, that the sheep gate had a little opening. There were walls in the little opening. And the shepherd would lie in the opening to protect the sheep. John 10, 9 and 10 NIV. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out. And that would happen in a city gate too. You'd go in and out through it and find pasture. The thief, John 10, 10, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I am the gate. So if you ever wondered, what is he talking about? The gate is a metaphor, and he is the gate. The one who preached the sermon became the way to life. And that's a beautiful reality. And we could say, well, I think there should be more than one way. Imagine that you had a deadly disease, and it was fatal. And imagine some doctor in another country came up with the vaccine and you've done your research and if you, you know that other people with these same symptoms, they take this vaccine and it saves them, they're healed. 
Imagine you did all your research and you've got, you know, you've got all the symptoms and you're going to die. But if you get on a plane and you go to this doctor and get the injection, you'll live. I don't think you'd sit there and say, you know what, I, I think there should be at least five vaccines in five different countries that I would have options. Isn't there something more local? No, what you would do is you'd get on a plane and go get the injection that you might live, amen? Amen? <laughs> well, Jesus is supplying the way. He is the antidote to our sin problem. He is the one who washes away our sin. And we can, we can do the modern thing, perhaps, saying that I think there should be multiple ways. I, I think it should just be about my sincerity. In fact, I want to make my own way. That's a very American thing to say, perhaps, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way and the gate is narrow. I think there's two primary reasons why people gravitate towards a wide gate. One, it's easy. And two, we're fallen, which we just saw calls to enter in our Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy 30, 19, Moses says to the people of Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Jeremiah 21, 8, you shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Implication, choose life that you might dwell in the land, that you might know the God that made you, that you don't reject the door that he has opened wide to you, even though the way is more difficult and the way is narrow. Jesus says some, some shocking things here. He says that there are a few that find the right gate and many that find the wide gate. There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, Psalm 100, verse 4, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to his name, bless his name. Isaiah 26, 2 and 3, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then Isaiah 26, 4 says, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Amen. This is something to rejoice in. God has made the way. Literally, God came down to be the way so that we could enter in. So we have two gates, the wide one and the narrow. If you're taking notes, now we have two categories of sheep and wolves and a warning from Jesus. If you're taking notes, two gates and then sheep and wolves, verse 15. Beware, says Jesus, of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. That word ravenous in Greek is harpox. It means they are destructive, vicious, and they lead people to destruction. Now, why right here does Jesus give a famous warning about false prophets? Because false prophets might tell you that there are many different gates that you could enter, right? Ah, don't worry about that gate over there. You could go over the hair, or you could enter through that gate, or you could enter through this gate. And so our Lord and Savior, our King, gives us a warning. He says, watch out for false prophets who come to you. How are they dressed? They look like sheep. What's a sheep in this metaphor? A sheep is a Christian. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are God's people. We are his flock. So if some come, someone comes to you looking like a sheep, that means they look like one of us. They seem to be part of us, and they begin to tell people a message that is false, that there are many different gates that you can enter into life. Jesus says, beware. And whenever Jesus says, beware of something, you better beware of it, amen? This is a reality, and this was a problem for Israel and a problem in the church. The false prophets would arise. They would tell the king what he wanted to hear. And famously, they would say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. And this is something that Jeremiah had to battle, and Isaiah had to battle the prophets of Baal. And even prophets who claimed to speak for Yahweh often were compromised and would preach a false message. Just let me give you one example. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the 
fifth book of your Bible. If you want to just listen to it, this is Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. This is one of many I could share with you. If a prophet, Deuteronomy 13, 1, or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. So let's say that they do some sort of miracle. And the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. Or we might say, there's other gates or other ways or other options whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Back to Matthew chapter seven. You can also write Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, where if a, someone claims to be a prophet and they keep speaking things and those things don't come to pass, they're a false prophet. Now, you know there are groups that are out there today and maybe you've done your research, maybe you haven't, and they've made prophecies about the end of the world. And they've said it's going to happen on this day or this year. And they've been wrong over and over and over again. I wouldn't be banking my eternity on those groups. Amen? Amen. I think this is a time to put your thinking cap on and saying, look, if they're 0 for 10 and their predictions of the end of the world and they keep redating it to another date and another date, I don't think I'm going to listen to that group anymore. I'm going to bank my eternity on Jesus Christ not on what some so-called prophet in the 1800s came up with while smoking cigarettes in the woods when he was about 14 or 15. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks with that one. (laughs) So Jesus, after talking about the gates, warns, which tells me there are going to be people who come along and they're going to be hirelings. Listen to John 10, 12, and 13. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming, John 10, 12, and 13, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. One aspect of ministry that doesn't excite a lot of people, but here it is, is there is a place for warning God's people about what's false. And that is a legitimate place to be. Jesus did it, and we should do it. Now, we gotta be careful that we're not nitpicking everybody's theology on peripheral things, because the infighting in the Christian church can be an ugly thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about differences in eschatology, or you know, we have some movements in Christianity who have different views on baptism and stuff like that. Those can be debated, but we don't divide over those. But when it comes to essential things like the way to God... The way to eternal life. We gotta die on those hills. And if someone's preaching a false gospel, we've got to make it known. Paul put it this way to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 28 through 31. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, says Paul, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not stop to admonish you or cease admonishing you, each one of you with tears, or Paul would say, tears in my eyes. Paul knew it was coming. He knew that there were going to be people in Ephesus and in different regions that would preach a different gospel. And he says, I'm warning you now. They're going to look like sheep. They're going to have the right clothing on. They'll have the right vocabulary. But they preach a different gospel. And Paul warns the Ephesian elders to be ready. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 24, 11, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Matthew 24, 24, and 25. And then 1 John 4, 1 rounds out what I could say. I could quote a lot of scripture to you right now, but he says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It shouldn't surprise any of us that there are many isms and world religions out there. Man has always been inherently religious. The question is not that. The question is, do you have the right God? You know what really matters when it's all said and done is do you know God and do you know how to get saved? Everything else is secondary. If you don't have that right, if you don't have the right Jesus, do you know there's a Jesus in just about every movement of the world? There's a Jesus of the New Age movement. There's a Jesus in witchcraft. There's a Jesus in uh, world religions. There's a Jesus in the cults. But Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Do you believe that I am the singular way to God? You might ask, well, with these descriptions from Jesus, how do we discern who's true and who's false? I mean, if people are dressed in sheep's clothing, how do we know? Well, we're going to look at two trees. That's the heading of verses 16 through 20. Two trees, if you're taking notes. Jesus says, here's how you'll know. You'll know them by what? By their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Now, if I look at an apple tree, I'm never confused. I know if an apple is growing on a tree, it's an apple tree. I know this is deep. You didn't have enough coffee, did you? I know an orange tree by what it produces. I know a tree by its fruit. It's not difficult to see. But you may say, well, what is fruit? Well, some, some of us as Christians, we automatically think of the fruit of the Spirit, and that might be part of the answer. You know, it's love and peace and joy and kindness and goodness and gentleness and all those things. And I think that's part of it. I would say there's two ways to discern fruit. One's doctrine, teaching, and one's deeds or lifestyle. You can find out most of what you need to know about somebody by what they preach and how they live. Amen? It's not that difficult. So deeds and doctrine, if you're taking notes. Does their teaching and their living fit with their proclamation? Jesus, uh, in Matthew th uh, 12, if you flip over just a few pages to your right, I think expounds on this and gives us a little bit more insight into how we measure such things. Matthew 12, look at verse 33. Jesus often was addressing the religious leadership. And he says, either, Matthew 12, 33, make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how, you, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he may be specifically talking about preaching here or teaching. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word, and he may be talking about general speech, but also about doctrine here. Every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. That's why James says, let not many of you be teachers, for we will incur what? The stricter judgment. I take that very seriously. That's why, as a pastor, I prepare hard. I, I don't do things halfway because I believe my job is to be well-prepared to serve up the word of God and to do it unto the glory of the king. He says, by your words you shall be justified, look at 37, and by your words you shall be condemned. Flip over one more uh, chapter to... Chapter 13, Jesus telling the famous parable of the sower. We'll study this later, but just take a peek at two verses. Verse 8, and others, Matthew 13, 8, fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some 100, some 60, and some 30. Skipping over to verse 23, same chapter. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed, what does he do? He bears fruit and brings forth some 100, some 60, and some 30. Fruit is the fruit of one's lips and life, if that helps you remember it. What one preaches and how one lives. I get a little concerned sometimes. Well, I'll meet a person and they'll say, I'm a Christian. 
but I don't see much fruit in their life. And I'm not the ultimate fruit inspector. Only God is, right? But I have a pretty good idea when I see hunger for the kingdom of God. I see a person who knows their Bible, a person who wants to gather with the people of God. We know we've passed from death to life because we love God's people. If there's no love of God's word, no love of God's people, no visible fruit in one's life, I'm not going to give anybody any false hope. I think we need to be careful. And ultimately, the judgment is up to God. But wouldn't you expect that if we're born again, fruit would come out? And here's the thing about nature, and it's true in the spiritual realm. A person produces what they are. If you're a Christian, you have a new nature. You've been born again of the Holy Spirit, right? And that nature will produce things in keeping with that new nature. Now, it's never going to be perfect, and we all grow, and we all know that. But if someone's not born again, you'll see probably no fruit in keeping with that new nature. And that is simply the point that Jesus is making. In 17 of Matthew 7, he says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree, key word, cannot produce bad fruit. Matthew 7, 18. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Everything in nature produces after its kind. Every man produces according to his nature. You cannot do otherwise. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, i.e. is not in the kingdom, is cut down and thrown into the fire so then you will know them by their fruits. That sums up the section. And you can see that every time Jesus sums up a section about a response, he says something very radical, like being cut down and thrown into the fire or destruction. Words that uh, I choose not to experience personally, amen? <laughs> right? I mean, he's giving like really stark, radical warnings about the right response. You will know people by their fruits. Now, here's two followers. We just looked at two trees. Now, we're looking at two followers. You could say true and false followers. Verses 21 through 23. If you're taking notes and you're trying to kind of keep track with the portions here. Two types of followers, true and false. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now, that's a double profession of allegiance. We learn that the word Lord, kiros, means my master, my king, uh, the one I, I am committed to, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And then these scary verses. Many will say to me on that day, probably the scene of a final judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I take it the name of Jesus. And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And all God's people said, gulp. <laughs> who, who is this? And let me ask you a question. Do you have a spiritual resume that compares to what these people just said? Have you cast out demons? Do you prophesy all the time? Have you done many miracles in Christ's name? Hmm. Well, this makes us wonder, well, who exactly is this? Well, two things we know about this group. One, look at verse 23. They never had a relationship with Christ. Never. I never knew you. And number two, they practice lawlessness. The regular lifestyle of these people is not to love God and love other people. They practice a life of no love of God and no love of people. But they have impressive looking works. Do you know that Judas Iscariot went out as they were sent out two by two, Matthew chapter 10, and apparently Judas was not only preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but perhaps he even performed some miracles. Maybe he laid hands on the sick. Jesus sent them out to do those specific things and gave them power, and they came back rejoicing, as you remember. Did Judas do some miracles? In the last days, there'll be lying signs and wonders. There'll be a false prophet, we're told in the book of Revelation. So it takes some discernment to know. How many of us know that we've turned on a television set before and seen a guy in a white suit apparently doing miracles, left and right, up and down? 
They only happen from seven to nine with the right stage, the right lighting, and you gotta have the white suit on, right? And so we've wondered, well, is that the type of person that will end up on that day and say, I did all of these incredible things in your name? Now, here's, here's a story that'll, it, maybe you'll find this interesting. So we knew a, a gentleman years ago, a wonderful saint who's been, since gone home to be with the Lord. And he said he was in a parking lot and he was at one of these events that a friend wanted to go to. And some of the people that were the plants there, they were the actors in the show, were out in the parking lot talking. And they had oxygen tanks that they didn't need, wheelchairs that they didn't need to sit in. They stood perfectly fine. They didn't have breathing problems. But someone said, oh, it's about to start. And they said, oh, the show's about to start again. And then they got into character again. And you think, wow, that's sad. But you know, it does happen. I have a friend we have a long history together. He's been a missionary. He's, he pastors a church today. This is a very reliable source. He said a, friend, a loved one of his, a family member, went to one of these events, which we would critique pretty hard and say, uh, it looks like it's phony. And they were sitting in the audience, never went forward, nothing. They had a pretty severe medical situation. And the Lord healed the person while they were sitting there. They never went forward, never got prayed over by the evangelist. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, doesn't that just blow up all your thoughts about how we judge things? And here's the point. God honored that person's faith even while they were sitting in an event that might have had some phony stuff in it. You see my point? God is sovereign. But apparently there are going to be many people on that day with very impressive spiritual uh, resumes in more what we might call the charismatic gifts like healings and miracles and casting out of demons, which we would say those could be really good things. And Jesus empowered his uh, disciples to do such things. And yet he's, he'll say, I don't know you. Luke 6, 46 will ring familiar. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? These people never had a relationship with Jesus I never knew you, and they practice a lifestyle of lawlessness, which should clarify for us who these people are. They're phony. They're charlatans. And I pray that none of you will unnecessarily lose sleep over these verses. Because anyone who's sincerely trying to walk with the Lord with all of our struggles and stuff, this is not who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a phony person who never intended to walk with them, but they have a religious resume. Remember the Jewish exorcist in Acts 19? They said uh, to a demon-possessed person, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out of him. Seven sons of Sceva. And the evil spirit answered and said, I know Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and if you remember the story, the demon-possessed person gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house uh, not in really good shape. So when someone doesn't know Jesus, they truly don't know his power. They practice lawlessness. 1 Corinthians 13, the opening verses of that famous section says, you can, you can even be a martyr. You can have your body burned, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. Love is the foundation of a true disciple. Jesus said, they'll know that you belong to me by your love one for another. Not that you can impress people with whatever it is you do. And, and think of one more thing and we'll move on. In Matthew 25, when Jesus sep separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep, the righteous, are surprised at his commendation of them. He says to them, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me, etc." And the righteous respond and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And there's a humility about them. They're kind of surprised that the Lord has taken note of what they did. And he says famously at the end of that, enter into the joy of your master. But the non-righteous or the goats here have to go over their resume. Hey, we did this, we did that. Remember when we did this, we did that in your name. And that's the contrast between the two. Now, 
we're winding down. We're going to look at now two houses, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, two houses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, storm-like conditions burst against that house, yet it did not fall. It had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them, he'll be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, same storm, floods came, winds blew, burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Another warning about a cataclysmic fall or collapse. Uh, Claudia Rizzi sent me a video it was from some years back, and there was a hurricane that hit Florida and Alabama and some of those places. Winds hit 160 miles per hour. And in Mexico Beach, Florida, it leveled all these houses that were basically on the beach, and one house survived. It, it, it stayed standing. And so they wanted to know what happened. And, and this guy had a vacation home there, and I don't know, remember his name, but... He had reinforced everything and kind of went above and beyond the building code with reinforcing his windows and hurricane windows and all that stuff. And, and they show some footage and he's looking out from his balcony. All these houses have been leveled and his house stood because he reinforced everything for a hurricane. 160 mile an hour winds. You know what the name of the hurricane was? Michael. <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't really mean anything, does it? Shouldn't mean anything. <laughs> Got a bad rap. So imagine that you were driving down a cul-de-sac and it was a brand new development of houses. And let's say that you see two houses next to one another and they're brand new and they've got all these sparkling appliances and exterior paint and all this stuff. And let's just say that they're both they're track homes and they both look the same. But you find out that they've been built on two different foundations. Everything else looks the same on the outside, but one guy built upon rock and the other guy built upon, let's just say dirt or sand. And looking at it from the outside, you might say, beautiful, they follow the same blueprint. Uh, everything looks good, everything's impressive. Maybe they're the same price. But then you get some inside information and you find out, and let's just say you lived at Mexico Beach. One guy went above and beyond with the foundation and hurricane-proofed his home, and the other guy eh, took some shortcuts. In Luke's version of this, Jesus says, there's one man who dug deep. He did the hard work. He went through the narrow road. And another guy, he, he didn't really dig deep. He, he, he kind of just did the, the, the quick thing and kind of ignored the instructions, etc. The two houses stand, and on a sunny day, you wouldn't know the difference. You know when the, you'll know the difference? When the storm comes. And the storm could be persecution and affliction and trouble. We've certainly been through some of that in the last couple of years, right? And we watched a little bit of how the professing church responded to some of these difficulties. But scholars argue that the storm probably points to the final day of judgment when the storm of God's judgment will reveal who's been built on Christ the rock and who was built on sand. And Jesus, when he tells a, a later parable of the wheat and the tares, he says, let them grow up together until the time of the harvest and then we'll know the wheat from the tare. The two houses look the same. They, these speak of two lives. Every one of the metaphors is pointing to people here. And they look the same. They have so much in common. But one built according to a divine blueprint and the Sandman built his house on a foolish foundation. And he was revealed for what he truly was when the storm came. That's really all that's gonna matter. I don't care about fooling people because that's a waste of time. I don't care about putting on shows because in the end that doesn't matter. I just wanna know when the storm comes, that he will keep me from falling. And the promise in Jude, I think it's either the last verse of Jude says, he'll keep you from stumbling on that day. All you gotta do is build on the right foundation. He'll take care of the rest. 
Now, when Jesus uh, had finished his teaching, notice the final two verses, the result was that when Jesus finished these words, or the Sermon on the Mount specifically, the multitudes were amazed or astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. How many times does Jesus say, you've heard it said of old, but I say. How many times have you just heard in this little section, I will say to you, I never knew you. Uh, he, he goes on and on with exclusive, authoritative claims like have never been made in the history of the world. Who would say such things? I don't know you, so you're not getting in. I am the way. I am the truth. Your relationship to him, according to the sermon, means everything. Jesus doesn't care if you're astonished by it. He wants to know if you're going to enter. Amen? That's been the invitation. And this is sometimes what we do. A sermon gets preached, and people walk outside the church, and maybe it was a good sermon with authority because the word of God's filled with authority and we kind of have our arm around somebody and we're like, oh, that was good, wasn't it? That was good, good, good. Knuckles, knuckles, yeah, good sermon, good sermon. I heard this story about a pastor. He invited this guy from Scotland, Scottish pastor. He came as a, a visiting pastor to preach. Pastor of the home church sat in the front row. The guy preaches a powerful sermon, calls people to repentance. And afterwards, the home pastor says, great sermon, brother, good job. And he says, thank you for saying that, but now... What are you going to do with it? And he said that to the pastor. <laughs> Come on now. See, this is the deal. Jesus wasn't impressed when people were astonished by him. Later on, he's going to astonish people by making falafels. No, just kidding. It's <laughs> Sorry, Lord. It's bread and fish. You know the story. And people are going to say, he makes lunch on demand. Incredible. <laughs> Who cares? Have you entered into life? Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. These are the words of O'Donnell. He says it better than I could, but I think Jesus' sermon and his actions may cause us to say, who is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is he that makes claims like this and backs them up? It's one thing to make a claim. It's another to back it up. This is O'Donnell. He says, if the world's most renowned heart surgeon tells us we need a heart surgery as soon as possible, we take her at her word. If our company's top computer guru tells us the problem with our computer is related to a certain virus, he explains how to remove it, we heed his advice. The argument that the Bible gives for theological exclusivity uses the same line of logic. If Jesus is the unique son of God who created and sustains the universe, who came to earth as a man, who performed miracles, especially rising from the dead, and if what he taught and did was predicted by the prophets, and attested by apostolic eyewitnesses, then what he says about entrance into the kingdom of heaven is trustworthy. And it would be good if we heed what he says. Amen? One other writer puts it this way, to sum it all up. Jesus repeatedly points out two things. The necessity of choosing whether to follow God or not. The fact that there are two choices and only two. There are two gates, the narrow and the wide, two ways, the narrow and the broad, two destinations, life and destruction, two groups, the few and the many, two kinds of trees, the good and the bad, which produce two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad, two kinds of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, the sincere and the false, two kinds of builders, the wise and the foolish, two foundations, the rock and the sand, two houses, the secure and the insecure. In all preaching, there must be the demand for a verdict. This is what Jesus makes crystal clear. Enter by the narrow gate. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for this time together and these poignant words, Jesus, that you preached on this particular occasion. They have rung through the corridors of time. They have the ring of the king because they were proclaimed by the authoritative God in human flesh. The God-man who came and moved and lived among us, lived the perfect life, predicted his own death and resurrection, 
fulfilled the prophet, said, destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it again, and did it. And on this, we bank our destiny, Lord, on this gate that you've made a way, you've provided, you are the gate to life. We come. Thank you for making a way. You didn't have to. You could have started over. You could have destroyed us all. And yet you came on a saving mission to provide the way. You are the way. You came in love. You came on mission. You came to save. And the only reason I'm in the kingdom today is because you pursued me, showed me your love, revealed your truth. And I pray, Lord, that as our generation considers the words of Christ afresh, as everyone Every generation must. We realize, Lord, that these words call us to make a decision. And I know this room and those who are watching, it's filled with many, many people who have already decided. They're in the kingdom. And all we can say is thank you, Lord. Thank you for purchasing our citizenship, for opening up the way. You are the way. And, and the price has been paid. And we want to build our lives on that solid foundation. We want to remember that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, but we receive it nonetheless by faith. And faith trusts, but faith also acts. Faith alone saves, but saving faith will never be alone. It will produce fruit. And that fruit we want to be to your glory, Father. Do you just keep your heart bowed for a moment? If you're not sure that you've entered into the kingdom of God through the one door, Jesus, if you're not sure that you've made that profession and more than that, that you've entered in, this would be a wonderful time to just say, Lord, I'm entering right now through Jesus Christ. Thank you for making the way. I'm turning away from all the false doors, all the worldly gates, I know the way is more narrow and hard, but I'm taking it. Thank you for providing it, Lord. Maybe you've wandered away and you need to come back to Jesus. This would be a great moment to come back to the shepherd, the guardian of your soul. He's loved you your whole life. And he will guide you where you need to get, where you need to be. And Father, for this precious congregation, once again, I thank you for them. I pray over them. I pray that we would be those who reflect this message in the way that we live and the message of our lips as well. I pray your blessing on each one in Jesus' name.